we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the Fed, the meeting that we just had, the contrast between the statement and the press conference and more. But before we go into it, I'd like to welcome my wonderful co-host Aisha. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us today. Um, we're going to keep this brief. We're not going to make it too long because I think most of what what was said and you know what was done is pretty self-explanatory. So not much to go over. In fact, I think this meeting was a little boring. What do you think, Mayhem? Yeah, it was a bit of a yawn fest. I mean, it kind of reminded me of February's meeting. Powell just doesn't seem very certain of the Fed's trajectory here. And while the statement was quite hawkish, you know, the SEP added to that hawkishness, revising the median dot plot from 5.1 to 5.6, Powell kind of came out and just didn't really seem sure of himself. Yeah, it seemed like he wanted to talk that down. So I think quite possibly, you know, the Fed doesn't like to surprise the market. They've been very cautious about that over the last couple of months. They've been very transparent, far more transparent than most uh, of the Fed has ever been. So I, I think in line with that, when they raised the dot plot by 50 basis points, to five point from five point one to five point six, that's like pretty hawkish. So I think he was trying to talk that down a little bit. Yeah, that is what it felt like, and it was just very reserved. I was thinking maybe if they were trying to get some of the hiking done in advance by setting expectations, that he could come out just a little bit more hawkish, try to guide sentiment to tighten financial conditions in the markets. We saw you know, pretty much the opposite of that. S&P closed positive, um, and I think it makes sense that it did, because if we look at it from a trading perspective, 43.50 was a pretty key level. We saw call buying start to come back in, particularly when it was clear that Powell was not moving forward with that sort of hawkish tone. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, we also have on the other side a ceiling around 4,400 on SPX with so much call open interest. That's like sort of the call wall. But having tested below 4,350 and then moved back up, the market had the, the clearance to move higher. And uh, of course, with Powell kind of guiding sentiment accordingly, there was reason for that. So it was interesting. And, you know, we had an interesting reaction to the statement itself. We saw two-year yields pop up 14 bips, and we saw 12,000 two-year two note futures contracts sold to open for September, which was a pretty big block trade. That's the biggest block trade in the two-year I think I've seen since March. So when that statement came out, expectations started to become a little bit more you know, concerned about where Fed policy could go. And I think we talked about this a little bit off mic. The market didn't really expect to see two rate hikes being discussed by this Fed's SEP. Right. In fact, I was looking at the projections from various banks and so on and so forth. So I think um, most said that they would pause. So most of most of the banks got that right. So did we. Um, but the majority also said one more rate hike. So sort of in line with what we thought as well, we were kind of uncertain as to whether he leaves the door open for one more further hike, so two hikes. But it wasn't certain at all. So I, I don't think anyone expected that they would go ahead and sort of raise it 
by two hikes at this stage. But what is interesting is um, the core inflation, right? So I, I didn't think that they would increase their core inflation. I did think they would reduce the unemployment rate, which they did. Uh, and rightfully so. We've we've had a very tight labor market. But it, and he talked a lot about the core inflation, in fact. Right. And and I think this is something that's beginning to be problematic and they're seeing this. So while they've increased it from 3.6 to 3.9, I think we could see far stickier core inflation um, than 3.9. So while their transmit, while their rate hikes are working, the transmission mechanism has been very slow. Yeah, it has. And the lagged and variable impacts of monetary policy are something we have to account for. The first rate hike was really March 15th of last year. QE started, or QT, I should say, started about a year ago in smaller size in June and kicked up to $95 billion a month in September. So it's fair to say we're still only in the early stages of realizing the impacts of monetary policy. And I think the point you raise about core inflation is so, so important. It's really something we can't understate. What have we seen with inflation, with these readings underneath the surface on a month over month and year over year basis, core inflation remains robust. This is the opposite of what the Fed wants to see. And most of it is concentrated in the services section, sector where we continue to see positive ISM. Now, the last ISM services PMI was just barely positive at 50.3, but it's still marginal expansion. And one of the things we've talked about at Macrovisor is that we don't really think that unemployment kicks up and the economy weakens too much until we see ISM services roll over. But if we don't see ISM services roll over, core inflation remains sticky, right? That's a bit of an issue. Absolutely. And the tightness in the labor market, I mean, we're seeing some softening. So Powell was right, even though, you know, the non-farm payroll numbers came out higher. We are seeing certain signs. So, for example, average hours worked is coming down. The quits rate is coming down. So, uh, sorry, going up rather. So, uh, no, it's coming down. Uh, it's coming down. Yeah, yeah. So all these various factors, sorry, it's very late for me here. It's past midnight, so I'm getting muddled a little. Um, but, you know, all these um, data points within the labor market, sort of, is actually pointing towards some kind of softening. But it's not nearly enough uh, to bring down the services inflation, to bring down core services and in fact, to break the labor market the way they want to see it. So um, there have been certain studies where they say that the labor market or rather the unemployment rate needs to go above 5% to be commensurate with a 2% inflation rate, right? So we're not getting anywhere close to that. So we're still at 3.7 by whatever measure you look at, we're between maybe 3.5 to 3.8, let's say, depending on whose measure you're looking at, because there are adjustments to be made to the labor numbers. And I think that's another problem, right? So we, we, we do get the labor data. It is lagged, but it isn't very accurate. So there, there are a lot of adjustments there as well. So we have to sort of look at various other data points to kind of tell us which way we're heading. But either way, even though there is some softening, it's not nearly enough. 
Yes, it's a surprisingly tight labor market. It's interesting because there's two sides to the story, too. And the other side of the story is the labor force participation rate remains near historic lows. And this has been a trend since the dot-com bust, that the labor force participation rate would fall meaningfully into a recession as more and more people lost their jobs. And then during the recovery, it would recover, but not quite anywhere near to the prior peak or even the prior sort of averaged highs, right, in labor force participation. We saw this trend continue during the great financial crisis where labor force participation fell below the dot-com lows. It recovered, but then during COVID, it fell very, very significantly. And it's recovered well versus prior recoveries. This recovery in labor force participation has been better, but it's still nowhere near our 20-year average. And so on the one hand, we have a tight labor market where there's about... Um, like, what is it at this point? There's a pretty significant amount of open jobs, like 1.7 open jobs for every insured unemployed person seeking work. As long as that situation remains intact, we had surprisingly strong JALF data. So the, opening, the open jobs are not going anywhere. As long as that remains intact, it's likely the labor market stays stronger than what the Fed wants to see. And this is sort of the interconnectivity between the services part of our economy that contributes about three quarters of GDP and that same labor market that connects into it. And I think that it goes back to this theme that we've, again, we've been discussing this at Macrovisor, that we can't see really inflation at the core level coming down meaningfully, or the economy really going into a recession or un, you know, employment really breaking until the services sector goes into a meaningful multi-quarter contraction. Right, <clears throat> and I think the other thing as well, um, which wasn't very clear, but then he did allude to it, is the rents, right? So, look, rents have remained stagnant. So when we, when I was looking at the CPI yesterday, year on year, shelter inflation has come down. The main thing that's keeping shelter inflation high in the CPI data is hotels and lodging. So we all know that hotel prices have gone up like massively, right? But the rental data, if you look at the rental data, it's been stagnant. So it's 0.5% uh, month on month. And that's what it has been at for the last, I think, three or four months now, right? So we aren't increasing. The rate of change is not increasing. The rate of change is not decreasing. So we're very, very stagnant here. And the problem with the way the rent is calculated, there's about a six month lag between which time, like, you know, the rental rates start to readjust. So we are seeing rentals come down on a year on year basis. However, if you look at the Zillow data or if you look at, you know, various other, you know, data sources, what you see is that there's been a reacceleration in the rental rates for the last two months. And it's not just the data. So I put out this question earlier on Twitter, I think a few days ago, and most of the people came back with anecdotal data saying, or anecdotal comments saying that they're seeing rents go up. And there's many of them said they've seen rents go up 40% or so. Now, this is something that we talked about during the last Fed meeting as well, um, that we might see rents reaccelerate. It was a fear that I had simply because you have people being priced out of the home market. People cannot buy houses anymore because mortgage rates are too high. And they're probably deferring their purchases until such time that rates come down because everybody's hoping for a rate cut, 
right? Whether end of this year or next year. So these things are now pretty well telegraphed. Let's put it this way. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we never knew what the Fed was going to do. Now there are so many analysts. There are so many people talking about it. It's all over the media. So they're probably hoping that when rates come down next year, we're going to buy next year. That's one. Second, the supply of housing is very, very low. So existing homes is less than three months availability. So less than three months of homes are available. And for new homes, less than eight months. So somewhere between seven to eight months of homes are available. So that's actually very, very tight. So what we have is that inventory problem that we were talking about last year, and it's come back again because I think the home builders, obviously, they stopped building for a while. We saw that in the numbers for the home builders. In fact, Lenar is actually reporting tonight. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But right, so the backlog of orders were coming down, drying up. People had stopped. But now we can see construction go up again. And this is mostly in the housing sector. It's simply because there's no inventory. So all of this, the bottom line, all of this is sort of pushing up housing prices even more, making it even more unaffordable for people to buy houses. And so your only choice is to rent. And now people know this. Right. So it's the, the real estate market is pretty transparent in that way as well. People know what's going on. So those who are landlords, they're increasing their rents substantially, even if they don't need to. So everything combined, this is not a good housing market. I mean, it, it's not what the Fed wants to see. And I do believe he did kind of hint at this, that housing is coming down, but it's not where they want to see it. And there perhaps may be a reacceleration in rentals, something that they may fear. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because Powell is the first Fed chairman ever to talk about a housing bubble. And yet, ironically, the Fed's policy of raising interest rates as rapidly as they did, of course, that raises the price of a mortgage as well, made it so less people wanted to sell their existing homes. And as a result of that, we've got such a tight supply that it's constrained the ability of existing homeowners to move because they're like, why would I want to move somewhere and get a six and a half, six and three quarter, seven percent mortgage, right? I'll just stand pat. And of course, more jobs are amiable to remote work and hybrid work. So there's less pressure to move as well. So I think that's one component of it. And then going back to the concern about rent, um, I think it's a valid one moving forward for another reason, too. The average mortgage is $2,300 a month. The average rent is $1,900 a month. So landlords still have some flexibility to continue to increase prices. And people still don't have the alternative of just buying a home. And I think that's sort of the, the, the irony of the Fed policy, just expanding on that point, though, is as much as they've hiked rates, it actually adds different types of inflation to the system to hike rates as much as they have and to hold them here. And that is to say the cost of capital is rising. And so if you're a business, you have to pass on that increased cost or you eat it in your margin if you have one at all. So one of the things that higher cost of capital actually does is it structurally embeds a different type of inflation. And so that's one of the ironies that we're seeing a little bit of this in how housing is priced. 
Yeah, it's almost like uh, the Fed is going to have to play whack-a-mole a little bit, right? So they they sort of suppress inflation in one area, and then it like kind of pops up in a different area. Um, so one thing that's interesting is he didn't talk much about uh, quantitative tightening or the runoff of the balance sheet, though. Um, and But they did talk a little bit about the Treasury issuances. Yeah, they did. I thought that was very interesting that Powell actually said, look, from our point of view, that the volume of Treasury issuance, which is particularly in bills, then, you know, notes and then bonds in that order of volume and in size, that it could impact both bank reserves and reverse repo markets and that they're not really sure how, uh, but they don't see reserves becoming, in Powell's words, scarce. Now, we also got information from the FDIC about unrealized losses for quarter one, 2023, and they actually fell, which is good news. They came down to $500 billion, which is a notable improvement. That was a uh, shrinkage of $102.2 billion from the prior reading from quarter four, and this was a 16.5% improvement on unrealized losses. But we still have about half of banks with more liabilities than assets, so we're not out of the woods yet, and we do have some potential catalysts about how these systemic risks that could impact banks may be rising in the back half of this year and going into the first half of next year as we look at areas like commercial real estate. And I think this is a really big area of concern that's worth paying attention to because if we look at what's happening, there's a wall of maturing debt for office buildings, for retail, for um, leisure and uh, hotels, for industrial and commercial buildings of all kinds. And this is really starting from the second half of 2023 and intensifying as we get into the first half of 2024. Now, if we look at the breakdown of who owns this commercial real estate debt, banks own half. And of the bank-owned commercial real estate debt, regionals own three quarters, right? So we can see that there's some concentration risk in an already vulnerable area. So we've had a vacation from the banking crisis, you could say, in regional banks, but it's not necessarily over. It's sort of an eye of the storm moment. And how do we navigate the next year is going to be exceedingly important, particularly given that if we look at credit conditions, they've been tightening meaningfully. Banks that have been impacted or even banks that have not have reduced how much they're willing to lend to clients of all kinds, whether it's individuals, small, medium, large businesses. But they're also going to likely have to pull back meaningfully on commercial debt lending, which means that all this debt coming due especially from landlords that are struggling with cash flows, is not all likely to be refinanced in an orderly or affordable manner. And so this is something that we've been talking about at Macrovisor. It's an area of risk that I think we need to pay close attention to. And it's even something that Powell himself has directly identified at prior Fed meetings. Yes, I think, so he kind of ended on this note, right? So this was, I think, one of the last questions uh, which someone asked. And so the one thing that kind of struck me as interesting is he said that we haven't seen how the banking crisis has actually played out, right? So which means that they are expecting <clears throat> further issues in the banking sector. And for all the reasons that Mayhem just pointed out, this all rings true. So today we had Fifth Third Bank, which is a pretty large bank in the U.S., um, coming out and saying that they're no longer going to do office lending, 
right? And it makes sense because we saw, okay, some improvement in the occupancy numbers, but they're far, far below what they should be, right? And you can't sustain a building with 50% occupancy. I mean, I've worked in real estate and the numbers just don't stack up. And most of these loans would have been done on a certain level of projections. And most of the projections have occupancy rates of at least 70 to 75%. That's like the bare minimum kind of thing that you look at. So anything below that is terrible. And the numbers we're getting, say, for example, from New York is that it's only at 50%, which is far below what can sustain a bank loan. So there are sort of, you know, companies that are in fact going ahead and saying, you know what, we would rather just default on the loan, take the property. Um, but that sort of doesn't help the system because now the bank is out of money and they're sitting with a property that they need to manage. They need to find someone to manage. They need to find someone to occupy. And there's no cash flow coming in. So at the end of the day, when you have massive scale, um, you know, sort of repossession of massive buildings, you know, commercial towers, you, you can't just sit on these towers. So the banks, have, it's it's not worth it for the banks to repossess these towers. It's actually worse for them because they're not making any money out of it. And there's no one to sell to because there's no one out there who will really buy. So you might have a, you know, one Blackstone or you might have a Starwood property who's still kind of okay, but even they're not big buyers anymore in this market. So they might be waiting on the sidelines for one or two or three distressed properties. But when you have mass scale distressed properties, there's no one who's going to be stepping in. So, and the size of these properties, the size of the loans, they can be anywhere between 70 to 100 million dollars to four or 500 million dollars, which is big enough to sort of, if a bank is lending to against two or three properties, one of the smaller regional banks, it's big enough to take down the whole bank, you know? So, and we have about 1.1 trillion um, of debt maturity coming up like this year and next year. And about 45% of these are on, floating rates. So which means as the Fed is raising rates, their interest payments are going higher, which means they aren't going to be able to service this debt very comfortably. Now, so you have occupancy coming down, cash flows are not coming in. So it's just, it's, it's a horrible situation. And I think, um, I think the Fed chairman, Jerry Powell, he kind of brought both of these things up to light. And he wasn't very comfortable. I mean, he kind of tackled it very well. But I think he left the door open to the idea that we might see further stresses in the banking system. And perhaps that might be one of the reasons why they have paused here. So Aisha, this is this is a good opportunity to A, just let folks out there know that you have nearly two decades of experience in, in corporate banking, but also that a lot of your experience is in real estate. And the reason I mention that in commercial real estate is that that brings a unique opportunity to talk just a little bit about that. What are you seeing with your experience, having seen some of these variants or, or, or analogs of this in the past, what do you see moving forward over the next year in commercial real estate as one of the potential risks moving forward? So I think, as I said, one of the major risks is that a lot of these office towers remain vacant for a while. So 
Another issue that we recently saw is that WeWork is in trouble, right? So now WeWork was a major, major, let's say, lesser for big office properties or, you know, expanses of floors, at least, uh, of office properties. And they're in trouble big time. So people are not going back to offices. Now, when you have abandoned buildings like this, I don't know what happens because, you know, in during the great financial crisis, we saw something completely different. That was residential properties. And residential properties are so much easier to sort of offload, repossess, do something with, you know. You will find buyers eventually. Commercial properties, it's not like this. I mean, I was listening to Sam Zell's book, and he was brilliant, right, at real estate. And he went through the last massive property crash, and he bought a lot of great properties at distressed prices. But you don't have those anymore. And if you have it across the U.S., and now you're seeing it across Europe, you're seeing it in the UK, you're seeing it in Australia. So it's not like there are very many big sovereign buyers either who can step in and take over these properties. So I think there's going to be a real problem here. And we're just going to have to see how it plays out. Yeah, absolutely. All good points. Appreciate the uh, the color on this. And it's certainly a topic that we'll be following moving forward. So at this point, we want to open things up to questions and answers. If you have any questions for us, feel free to raise your hand, request to speak, and uh, we'll be happy to try to help out any way we can. And we also want to thank everyone, while you all are thinking of your questions, for tuning in. This whole thing is brought to you by Macrovisor. We actually have a 30% off sale for your first year, whether you get a monthly or yearly plan, visit us today until Tuesday to take advantage of our FedNest Day sale. And I see Jero's asked a, uh, to, to come up as speaker, so let me just go ahead and add him here. Hey friend, how's it going? Thank you so much for tuning in. What's on your mind? And I, I don't know if you're speaking right now, but I cannot hear you. No, it was showing he's connecting and then he's popped off. Okay, so Twitter Spaces is being Twitter Spaces. <laughs> Something like that. I think maybe. maybe there might be too many spaces out there at the same time. <laughs> There's not enough space for all these spaces. Is that what's going on? Something like that. Okay, he's back. All right, let's get him in here. Hey, friend, thank you so much for tuning in. What's on your mind? You have to unmute. Um, I say hi there. Uh, thank you very much for picking up my question. Um, I actually don't have a question. I just wanted to add. Uh, also, what was surprising was uh, was the GDP upward revision or the upward estimates of the members. Right, like in March they estimated 0.4 percent for the year of 2023, and now they they have it up to 1 percent. Um, uh, I'm just wondering if that might be also because the banking crisis was relatively fresh back then. But also, uh, um, how do you say, what I'm a little bit confused about is actually there is no recession or whatsoever priced in, right? Because if you have 1% real real GDP growth for 2023, you have no, no recession in 2023. 2024, they say 1.1%. And in 2025, we are back at 1.8%. And this, um, how do you say, um, and this, although they actually increased the 
um, what do you say, they also increased the terminal rate by 50 basis points. And still they have GDP growth 0.6% higher than before. Um, uh, what do you think about this would be my first question and then, um, and then I would have a second question also for Aisha later, if that's okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I, I do know that um, at least uh, she's having some trouble hearing you. I'm hearing you okay, but I think Spaces is is a little bit glitchy. Okay, uh, but yeah, okay. And, yeah, no, no. I'll, I'll I'll pass on anything you want to ask to her directly, though. So no oh, worries cool. at all Thanks. about that. But in in terms of your uh, your query, I mean, the confusion is well placed, right? Like, there's no recession anywhere here. In March, we were talking about uh, the potential, the increasing potential for maybe a soft landing not being as probable. Now they're like, well, we're not going to land at all, right? In the sense that we're not going to have any kind of recession. <laughs> we're, we're pretty much like smooth sailing. There's going to be a Federal Reserve refueling of the economic plane mid-flight, right? That's kind of what the SEP is talking about. I think that's interesting, but I think it also coalesces with what we're seeing in labor and what we're seeing in the services sector, which is, as Powell was saying, surprising resilience in the economy, particularly in that part. And I think that might speak to why a, they're leaving the door open to some more tightening here, which, you know, quite frankly, would make a lot of sense to uh, uh, at least set the expectation that they could do another 50 bips. But on the other side of it, it is interesting and a little bit puzzling that they would say, look, we're not going to see any meaningful uh, contraction on at least an overall year over year GDP projection basis. Aisha, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I th yes, the, he's right. The upward revision was actually quite surprising, and it's a steep upward revision. So we were at 0.4%, and now we're at 1% at the end of the year. So that's real GDP growth. But I think you and I, we had a debate around this um, last weekend, and where we kind of discussed that one of the reasons that we might not see a recession right, right now would probably be because, again, that government spending level, right? So I think when, you know, the whole debt ceiling deal was going through, most people thought that there were going to be a lot of cuts to government spending, and that would sort of bring down the entire GDP number. Now, there are two things that have happened since then. The spending has been capped, but it hasn't been significantly reduced. And that was a large part um, that was a major reason for sort of GDP going up last quarter. And then further to that, you have this tight, tight, tight labor market where wages are still going up and people are still working. So there's still consumption in the economy, right? So again, this transmission mechanism has been extremely slow. And one of the biggest reasons for that has been the very high rate of consumption in the economy. Now, you have student loan debt coming up, you've got credit card to the max, you've got all these issues which are slowly starting to take shape and slowly starting to destroy demand. Um, and this will sort of bring consumption down. But the biggest factor here is breaking the labor market. So until and unless we actually see unemployment rate go up significantly, consumption will not come down enough. That will not bring GDP down enough. So the thing that we were discussing was we still think there will be a recession, but we still think that it's going to be delayed but not canceled. So by that, we mean we might see a recession sometime in the first half of next year. 
Um, and because I just wanted to add one thing also to wage inflation, because uh, because average hourly earnings, in my opinion, is um, is actually a terrible measure of wage growth, right? Because because you don't uh, because you don't account for the composition of the of the pool of people that you compared with. So so how do you say? So for instance, when you had so many people leaving in the tech industry and in finance industry, those 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 people earn much more than, for instance, like people who work in the, um, how do you say, in a restaurant, right? So, so automatically, average hourly earnings will automatically come, come, come down, because because higher earning people left the labor force, right? So, but looking at Atlanta Fetch Fed wage tracker, and I think that's also what Powell is looking at. It's still at six percent. And so it's troubling to me, you know, and that's and that's why I don't understand if they are looking at the six percent growth in the Atlanta Fed median wage tracker. Uh, I actually don't understand why they actually skipped today, right? Because if they are really so worried about inflation in the wage uh, area, um, yeah. Uh, Okay, that was less of a question, actually. It was just a statement. <laughs> but I actually also have a question, Aisha, sorry. Uh, because no, you said I think you're working. Yeah, sorry. I, I think there is a question in there, though. I, I mean, it's, okay. it's, <laughs> I, I think it is something to expound upon. I think you're making a really okay, good point. I'd, I'd love to hear Aisha speak on it more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is a great point about the average hourly earnings. Um, you know, it's it's not a good measure. It's not a uniform measure. That's why... What the Fed likes to look at is the employment cost index, the ECI, and that comes out on a quarterly basis. So it's a little bit more smoothed down, you know, like over the few last few quarters. Um, and that is coming down a little bit, but it's not coming down enough. I think it's still above four and a half percent, if I'm not mistaken. And so your Atlanta wage tracker is sort of a little bit more real time and it, it kind of um, goes hand in hand with the employment cost index. Now, with regard to why this today, yes, they are concerned about core inflation, but I also think it's got something to do with the treasury issuances. So um, despite what people are saying and how people want to take this, I do think that the treasury issuances will have an effect on the market. And so does Mayhem. We've both discussed this. We have the view that it will cause some upward revision to the short-term rate. So that's tightening in and of itself. Secondly, he spoke about the banking system. And the tightening within the banking system will take some time. So what you are seeing right now in the you know senior loan officer survey is dated data, right? So it's old data. But if you if you look at the numbers like more on a real time basis, you can look at the small business surveys, which show you you know better numbers sort of and more accurate numbers for small businesses because they're the ones that are hurt the most. And what you'll see is the standards are tightening significantly. So as these um, you know lending conditions tighten, it's kind of doing the work for the Fed. So they kind of want to see how this works out whether there's a change in, say, small business employment and therefore, you know, trouble in uh, the labor market, whether it comes down significantly enough or cools significantly enough 
for them not to have to raise immediately. Cool, cool. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a final question actually for you, Aisha, because because you said you work in um, uh, in the past, you worked in the real estate sector. So I was just wondering, like, um, um, how do you say, like a base case, a normal case, when a uh, what do you say, when a developer comes to you and they and they want to finance a project, like when they look at the occupancy rate, I can imagine it's a very long project, right? It takes five years probably to build the whole building and stuff. Um, how do you say, so what kind of vacancy rates do you account for? Like, let's say, do you account for, okay, in the beginning, you can have a vacancy rate of 30%, and then I expect you after a couple of years to have a vacancy rate of 20%, and then down to 10%, or, or, or how do you say, or what's an average project like in that area? Um, and the reason why I'm asking is because of this, um, how would you say, because of the commercial real estate uh, sector issue that we have. Because if the vacancy rate, because if they account for a relatively high vacancy rate anyway, right? If they, if they finance projects and they, and, they, and they have a buffer and say, okay, we expect on average a 20% vacancy rate. So obviously the may, way, okay, yep. so... Okay, sorry. I mean, because I can't, I can't hear him. Uh, so, I, I'm, I'm just watching what Mayim is typing. For yeah, I'm, me. I'm transcribing in real time here, folks. So I'm doing my best. Uh. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So, obviously, there is a buffer built in. So, when it's from a bank's perspective, when somebody comes to me and asks for a loan, they would give me an occupancy rate of say anywhere between 90-95% because they want to show that their project is doing really well. But what the bank does is they kind of stress test this and bring them down. So they have like a lower level of occupancy. So there are a couple of things that they can do. They will either raise, you know, the rates, so the margins will be higher. But if the occupancy sort of doesn't stack up, and what we're seeing right now is a really, really terrible situation. What you see is that projects are not going to get financed. And that's exactly what we're seeing, what I mentioned about Fifth Third Bank, right? So he's not they're not going to do uh, office lending anymore because they know there's a problem here. They know that no matter what a company comes and tells them about filling their building, this building will likely not get filled up. So... I think it's going to be a very tough situation for developers in this market. Very, very tough situation, in fact. Um, and most of these projects will be stalled. And I can tell you one more um, data point here. Hotel projects that were in the pipeline, many of them have been canceled. I think there's a cancellation rate of, I think, maybe 40% or something. Like it's one of the highest cancellation rates in a very long time. So all these projects were meant to come online but they're not anymore because people don't want to take that risk of building out all these hotel properties and then not having the occupancy they want. And hotels still have good occupancy on average, but because they turn around rooms faster. But when you consider the real estate market or the office real estate market, that's even worse. So you're not going to see a lot of new projects getting built. That's, that's the situation. Thank you. 
All right. Awesome. So I see we have a couple other folks that requested. I saw Baby Bear, you were out there earlier and you requested again. Let me get you up here. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate all of you out there for tuning in. If you didn't get to catch the whole thing, good news. We're going to have a recording of this on Twitter after we close out the spaces, but we'll also be putting it out on, as a podcast. And if you haven't checked out the Macrovisor podcast, you can go to your favorite service, Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, type in Macrovisor and you can find us there and become a subscriber to our episodes. You can also visit us at our website at macrovisor.com. We have both free and premium content. Baby Bear, how's it going out there, my friend? What's on your mind? Hey, hey, how you doing? Great to have you on. Great to have Aisha. You guys are amazing. I admire and uh, really value you guys' content that you guys post up. So great job putting this together. Um, I want to add to what Aisha was saying is Aisha was talking about earlier about how projects are now getting stalled. So um, let me tell you, I had a meeting not too long ago. There's a few points that I'd like to add, which will kind of open insight from the other side. I had a meeting with some bankers. You know, we're on the development side and on heavy on the real estate, uh, the CRE. Um, they Are you still with us, my friend? You, you, you kind of cut here, out there. Here, so what I'm seeing is they are. There's a lot of debts that are going to be coming up for renewal from 2019, which were financed at the lower interest rate, and now they're coming up for those five-year terms. Those are coming up for renewal soon. So based on that, um, the debts were serviced at two percent and uh, a lot cheaper rate. Um, to and now those when they're going to be being um, serviced at seven percent, eight percent. A lot of them will simply be handing over the keys. Also, the um, the cap uh, the cap the cap rates have changed as well. So banks are getting a lot more conservative, and uh, um, once people will not be able to service the difference of that debt, simply they'll be handing over the keys. So I do see a big turmoil right around the corner. I am I I hate to sound like a obviously it's 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 an oxymoron because I sound like I am a bear. My name is a bear, but then I, saw, I always want to be bullish. But nonetheless, there is turmoil on the CRE side, which Jay Powell did emphasize um, today in the meeting. And I think they see that as well. As much as they're trying to sugarcoat this, um, smaller banks who did lend to on the commercial real estate side, um, heavy on these projects, will be having some, will be feeling some pain. So one thing is that. Next thing, a big uh, a commercial, uh, somebody who's big on the office spaces side, I'm sure everybody has heard, is Brookfield. So Brookfield is to, is having a dumpster fire right now. They're literally sitting there either handing over the keys right back to their uh, lender, um, which a majority of their debts are serviced to the Royal Banks of Canada, or, um, or they're simply just having to hand over the keys or uh, restructure that debt. So debt is going to be a really big issue here here shortly. So I don't know. That's that's I I I didn't know honestly that Aisha was in the banking side. So that's good to know. Aisha, we need to link up because uh, maybe you can lend some of my projects as well. You know. Yeah, I made this joke with someone today. Someone was asking me about uh, lend, borrowing money, and I said I don't lend money anymore. Now I give out stock tips. So, yeah, no, but interesting about this. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, for sure. Brought this up. 
because we we actually uh, I think at what two weeks ago we saw Park Hotels do exactly this. So their loan was coming up for uh, you know. Uh, it was coming due, and instead of sort of restructuring it or refinancing it, they actually just handed back the keys. So they gave up these two hotels, I think, um, and they chose to default, right? Because right now it's like, as I said, it, it's easier to just because you have your property, you can just give back your asset. If it's not occupied anyway, you're not earning money from it. So you just might as well just give it up. I mean, it's it's a weird, weird situation. And I don't think anybody would want to do that. But if banks are not restructuring the loans, if banks are not refinancing you, you don't have a choice other than for someone big to step in. And if people like Brookfield, who's really, really big as well, um, are not stepping in, then you know that this is going to be a serious problem very soon. Absolutely, absolutely. But let me ask you this now. So we're seeing in certain sectors how on my side, we're we're focused on two different industries. Um, One second, hold on. Let me try to fix this nearby. One second. And folks, if you have any questions for us, feel free to request to speak and we'll be sure to get you up here. All right. So basically, and I apologize. So basically, um, what I am seeing is concentration in certain fields are still thriving. Industrial is thriving. Um, Industrial is still thriving. There's a lot of money to be made in industrial still uh, because industry has not slowed down. So I think on the real estate side, only certain people will uh, hand over the keys. It's not going to be. I wouldn't. I wouldn't make a blanket statement where it's going to be throughout throughout the whole board, because um, some people will absorb the seven points, eight point, the higher interest rates, um, restructuring loans on a higher interest rate. Um, they will service that debt, but some banks and banks are still servicing debts on industrial property. So industrial, I do see still booming. I I'm also very bullish on Class A buildings, um, which is um, if there's a jewel in every city, which is brand new construction, I'm still bullish that those will thrive. Uh, those office spaces will thrive. But all the old offices, which have been sitting there 20 years, 30 years, which have been ha- just had a lipstick on it, I think those guys are going to be suffering the most. So that's my take uh, overall. You know? What do you think about that, Aisha? That's the, uh, so are you seeing it on certain sectors being affected, or is it real estate just right across the board? No, of course, there are certain sectors that are still doing okay, right? So office properties are the worst. And as you said, even within the office properties, uh, the newer built uh, class A properties, you know, the properties with the bells and whistles, they're doing slightly better. Um, However, you're right, industrial is doing okay. And not just here, even in Europe, I have some friends working there, they're they're doing very well with industrial properties in the UK and in Europe. Um, so th- there are pockets of strength in the market, yes. But overall, I think there's also, when you're talking about stocks in general, or REITs in general, I think the whole market has been beaten down quite a bit, because some of what we're seeing in the uh, office property sector will, of course, replicate to others. So I think just as a sector as a whole, um, people are just afraid to touch it now uh, for all the reasons that we've discussed. So all great points. I think, yeah, I, I completely agree with you on uh, on these things. And 
I think it's a good time just to stay away from the REIT sector or the real estate sector for now. Yeah, absolutely agreed. All right. So I see we have a couple folks out there that have requested. I think, Abby, you've been you've been waiting for a little bit here. Let me get you in. And thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Abby, I hope I'm pronouncing your name properly. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what, what's on your mind? Hi, Mayhem and Aisha. Thank you very much, first of all, for the tremendous work you folks are doing at Microvisor. I'm a big fan, and uh, I'll, I'll continue to be. Um, so I had a few um, questions, and uh, just I was curious what you, you and Aisha's opinions are on, on this. So first of all, what are your opinions – uh, what are your opinions on uh, Jerome Powell's effort to combat uh, inflation, and has he succeeded in overcoming it, or is it is is this just a bandaid uh, thanks to uh, Biden's government flooding the market with uh, with oil from the federal uh, fr- from the reserves? Um, and and the other thing is, what are what's your take on the new? the new method of calculating the CPI consumer price index and uh, like as in okay well they're tackling the core infl- uh, core, core 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 CPI now so uh, what's what, what's your take on this uh, the other part of the question is why did we get a pause today did Powell not want to see the banking system fail and thought it's worth pausing right now and why, why do we consider this a, a, a hawkish pause Additionally, from a historical perspective, um, what do you think Powell's playbook, like what it, what what playbook is he following? Um, just looking at the circumstances that uh, that uh, that's that's happening in the um, uh, uh, the ma- the ma- macroeconomics right now. And last question is, uh, since many banks uh, are are um, backed up by real estate. Um, why aren't we seeing uh, real estate prices go down uh, simultaneously with banks' uh, systems failing? Um, I know I threw a lot of points out there, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak. Sure, yeah. Thank you so much. Some great questions in there. I'll address uh, a few of them here. Uh, in terms of inflation and, and whether Powell's conquered it, I think core PCE and core CPI decisively say no, that the Fed has not conquered inflation, that in fact parts of it are becoming more sticky, and that's actually a really big concern. And the the unrelenting strength of the service sector is really where that's coming from, right? We've seen relief in goods. We've seen weakness in manufacturing. We have nine months in a row of ISM manufacturing, PMI in contraction. We have new orders slipping. We have backlogs slipping there. So we know that part of the economy, which is only about a quarter percent, uh, or I'm sorry, a quarter of GDP contribution. We know that part of the economy is slowing. But in terms of ISM services, it's still marginally in contraction. Last reading, 50.3. And uh, prices are still going up there from wage growth. So I think that if wages are still rising, and um, you know, we heard from Baby Bear, we, or we heard from Jero earlier that the uh, Atlanta Fed wage tracker was showing 6%, um, then that's another issue, right? Wages are still growing at a rate that's beyond what the Fed wants to see. I think the Fed's more comfortable with two and a half, maybe 3% wage growth. And so as long as wages are rising, as long as the services sector is resilient, there are some drivers for inflation here. Let's also remember labor force participation remains historically low. It is off the the all-time lows we saw during, or at least the lows that we've seen in in this half of the last, uh, you know, century, um, 
Uh, it, it's it's well off that, but it still has not recovered. We still have a rather tight labor force. And then on the other side of that, you know, we have structural scarcity too. So we have a scarcity of of actual participating people in the labor force. And then we also do not have enough energy. We do not have enough raw materials. We do not have enough agricultural capacity. So there's some structural drivers of inflation that ironically, the Fed's policy is actually going to make a bit worse. The longer they have to keep rates high and the higher that they go, there's pass-through pressures to inflation from a higher cost of capital. But there's also other ancillary impacts of a higher cost of capital. For example, if you were the CEO of an oil gas company or a metals company and you were being told at your board meeting that, for one, your cost capital is going up. Secondly, business is slowing down. Three, the cost that you have to pay people to work for you is going up too. Are you going to expand supply in that environment when you know that demand is down and your costs are going up? No, you're not. And when you start to slow down, it takes a long time to get back into full full swing, right? Second, we have over a decade of lack of investment in some of these key areas. We've had the least new oil discoveries in 2021 that we saw in 75 years. So there's not enough exploration. There's not enough production. There's some structural supply issues that are sadly being a bit exacerbated by Fed policy, but the Fed only has the set of tools that they have, right? All they can do is kind of take a sledgehammer to demand and hope that that helps. And unfortunately, where we are right now, not yet, but as we discussed earlier, the lagged and variable impacts of monetary policy often take somewhere between 12 and 18 months to be fully realized in the economy, and we're only 15 months out from the first hike. So I'd say for now, they haven't nailed it, but it also hasn't been enough time to really see what those impacts are. In terms of why did they pause and, 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 and how is it hawkish, I think that the statement itself was hawkish. When they came out with the statement that said, we're going to do 50, not 25, more bips of hikes, that was hawkish. That was not priced in by the market. It wasn't really expected. Remember, the last dot plot that they gave us in March was 5.1%. This is now... 5.6%. So that's a pretty big change. They also revised up their inflation expectations, full well admitting to the world that their fight against inflation isn't even going towards their expectations, that it's not going quite as hoped. Now, in terms of the banking system, Powell directly identified that there are some growing risks there. I think that there certainly are, uh, particularly within commercial real estate. And so why would they pause here? They need to assess the impact of monetary policy. But also, I think that there are some concerns about how much this issuance could push up the uh, very front of the curb and possibly absorb some liquidity. He even acknowledged that, saying that reverse repos and bank reserves may fall. Not sure exactly what the distribution of those drops may be and the overall impact. But he also went on to say that he didn't think that, um, you know, that we were going to see bank reserves become scarce, in his words. And in terms of his playbook, I think Aisha and I have talked a little bit about how he's trying to follow Volcker. He sort of idolized the man. He carries his book around, or at least he used to. He did at the Jackson Hole speech. But the speech we got today from Powell was a sharp contrast in the statement. It was, it was very reserved. It was very toned down. So we had the statement play bad cop. We had Powell play good cop. And I think he is, as you kind of spoke to, a bit nervous. He seems just a little bit uncertain. So for your other questions, I want to I wanna give Aisha a chance to talk about the CPI calculation and also what's going on in real estate. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, I just want to add to the playbook. Um, yeah, he, I, I do think that he is following Volcker. But in general, 
Um, the Fed has always been of the idea that it's better to over tighten. And so I've been saying that they can and will tighten into a recession. And the reason I say this is because they're very, let's say, overconfident that they have the tools to walk things back if they over tighten. So I don't think this is an issue. And, and this, has, this is a problem with every Fed that comes around. And so I don't think that, you know, they'll want to let's say, pause too early because they're afraid of inflation coming back um, or they, they're, and they're seeing that already, right? So, and I think this is why they increased um, the dot plot or, you know, the level, the terminal rate this time around. Now, to to your question about the CPI changes, so I'm just remembering what they did last time. I think they did two things. They did the seasonal adjustments, and then they changed some of the weighting in the CPI data. So as far as the seasonal adjustments are concerned, um, the projections that I saw was basically it was going to make inflation look stronger both on core and headline inflation, and we're kind of seeing that play out. So the base effects should have brought down core inflation slightly more, but they, they haven't. Um, it's still running pretty hot. And then in terms of changes in the weighting, I think they increase the weighting in the housing and they decrease the, and this is CPI, yeah? So, and then they decrease the weighting in um, new and used vehicles and to, to a certain extent, medical care and education. Now, funnily enough, uh, yesterday's numbers showed us Shelter inflation, housing inflation was stable, as I said, but uh, it also showed us that medical care has gone up, and that was because of the pharmaceuticals. So the pharmaceutical companies are kind of front-running the Inflation Reduction Act, so they're increasing prices before the Inflation Reduction Act comes into play. That's one. And then in terms of the used cars, um, we saw that running very hot. I think it was 4.4%, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, month on month. And we're, we saw that in the Mannheim used car index as well. So now there's, again, yet another squeeze in the used car situation, and we're seeing prices go up. So basically, both these issues were supposed to kind of make inflation or make core inflation go higher because just because of the housing component being so much more. Um, and we're kind of seeing that, right? So we're seeing core running higher and hotter than expected. Um, the other question was on real estate. Um, why aren't real estate prices going down? So if you're talking about the housing sector, we talked about that earlier, that there is a shortage in the housing sector. So real estate, so housing prices did go down but I think people were so scared last year, they stopped building and then the inventory went down massively, right? So I think that's what's kind of pushing housing prices up again. Yeah, we've got that. And then we've got the the scarcity in existing homes as well. We've got a lot of homeowners exactly. who just don't want to move with mortgage rates as high exactly. as they are. So there's lower supply. So it's a bit structural. Um, and, and essentially for the Fed to unfortunately break down some of these these wealth effects, it's, it's going to require this sort of mantra that they've been echoing, which is higher for longer. Uh, we've got a couple more questions here. We're going to get these folks up here. We want to be mindful of everyone's time. Dr. Hughes, we've seen you waiting for a little while patiently. Thank you so much. And uh, what's on your mind, Dr. Hughes? Thank you so much for tuning in. 
Hi. Uh, so thanks for hosting this session. Um, I just have two questions. The first is, um, could you speak on, I've been following your QQQ TLT chart, and um, it's surprisingly the jaws are very wide right now. So I'm just wondering if you can maybe elaborate on what you think is uh, causing um, such a wide divergence, and also if um, you can maybe elaborate on maybe when do you expect, um, what are some signs to look out for when TLT might um, start to reverse uh, upward? Um, sure. That, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Do you have another question? Um, yeah, but I could just ask you after. Yeah, of course. So in terms of QQQ versus TLT, we can also look at things like the NASDAQ composite or CompQ versus the 10-year note price. Uh, there's a couple of different correlations there, tips as well. They're all very large jaws, even LQD versus QQQ. And what that's telling me and my very oversimplified version of it is that risk premiums are getting extremely compressed, um, that we're seeing that you know tech is kind of diverging into its own little world right now, where 15% of the stocks in the S&P, or I'm sorry, the top 15 stocks in the S&P account for over 90% of the gains year to date. And of course, most of those are mega cap tech. The NASDAQ, the top five stocks in the NASDAQ are about 44% of the index. And so when you're in this sort of end cycle environment, one thing that can happen with long only money managers is they can start to rotate up size using factor or size as a heuristic for quality. So you're going up, 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 and up. Right. And and so that means that people are going from, you know, small cap, mid cap, large cap, mega cap. Basically, if you're a long only fund manager and you can only have five, 10 percent allocation in cash and maybe some marginal amount in bonds, the only thing you can do with your client's money is go into parts of the market that you think might be safer or more defensive. And there's a couple of different variations of that. One is chasing mega caps. Right. And particularly if you're a growth manager, you really can't get into defensives. You really can't get into low volatility defensive type of stocks like aerospace or uh, staples or health care or things like that. So I think that's one reason that it's it's significantly outperforming. I think another reason is all of the positive sentiment around AI. Some of it is warranted. A lot of it is not. AI does have a tremendous amount of potential and promise, but we're pulling forward a couple of years worth of future returns into the present with the kind of uh, hype exceeding maybe where the capabilities are right now. And, you know, I've I've uh, looked at AI for quite a while. I think it's a very exciting space. I think there's a lot of stuff that's going to come out in the next five or 10 years. It's going to be groundbreaking and change the way that we use technology. But I, with the technology where it is right now, I still think there's a lot of time in the development cycle to really reach that point. And remember, it's similar to uh, full self-driving, which is sort of considered a form of machine learning. Maybe some would even go out on a limb and call it AI. But we've been told since, you know, 2015, 2016, we're going to have self-driving taxis on every street. They're not there yet. We're only in the very early iterations of it. Uh, sadly enough, in I think San Francisco the other day, a small dog was run over by a self-driving Waymo car. So we know the safety protocols are not really there yet. Um, there was an Air Force story that was quickly retracted. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But they did a simulation where a AI drone killed its operator. Now, they very quickly came back and said, no, 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 that didn't really happen. We're sorry. Like, we said all that in error. I don't know how that could even be said in error. But it happened. And I think that basically we're in this environment where hype is getting a little further than reality. There's also a group of three people in France. They started an AI company four weeks ago. It got 105 million euros in funding. They don't have a product. They don't even really have a website, but they already got that kind of funding. So I think there's a lot of exuberance. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of passion about what's happening with language learning models and other areas of AI. And then finally, you have enormous amounts of call flow. 
into NASDAQ stocks and into the NASDAQ itself. It's pushed single stock uh, skew to the call side, which is pretty extraordinary because really for, for the back half of 2022, single stock skew was largely towards the put side, even for much of this year. And what that means is people are paying more for insurance than they were for upside speculation. Now we've seen that switch over to the other side. We've seen record inflows into the NASDAQ 100 over the last couple of weeks as well on the, on the uh, call option side. So I, I'd say we need to see these flows change. Last week was the first week we've seen an outflow in tech in four weeks. We'll see if we, that continues. We've also got to pay close attention to the options market, particularly as we get past options expiration. It's a pretty call-heavy options expiration. So there's some, um, some left tail downside skew as we get through this. So I'd say we're looking for a momentum shift. That's really the key thing. And we're looking for a shift in flows and a shift in sentiment. And I think that's when you get that the, the possibility that maybe the jaws start to close. On the other side, TLT can very well start to come up as well, particularly if recession fears start to come back. Now, obviously, that seems far-fetched right now. But if you have something happen in the economy or in the banking system that gets people concerned, TLT can get a very significant bid in a short amount of time. And of course, while it's getting that flight to safety bid, you tend to see de-risking in risk assets, particularly those long duration, more speculative risk assets. So I'd say we're, we're going to have to pay attention. It's still an evolving situation, but I would personally want to see more, more buyers of puts and buyers of calls, that open interest and volume starting to surge. I'd like to see complacency come out of the equity put call ratio where it's been oscillating between like 0.5 and 0.6. I'd like to see NAAIM coming lower. Last week's reading was above 90, showing that the National Association of Active Investment Managers are super duper long, the longest they've been since I want to say, I think it was early 2022. Um, we got double A, double I, you know, active investment manager or active investor survey, retail survey, also at highs we haven't seen in a very long time. There's just a lot of things that are kind of telling us we're at this moment where we're very stretched in positioning and in flows, but we haven't yet seen that turning point. I'd say, I think that's what it's going to be really important if one is looking to either, you know, insure, buy hedges, raise cash, or even take on short positions. We've got to see that turning point. And until we do, I think that we still have some upside risk. And options expiration week, as we go throughout this week, I'm really looking very intently at that 4,400 ceiling on SPX in terms of the amount of call interest that's there. That's the wall of calls. And then below that, if we look at 4,300 on SPX, that's kind of the ball trigger. We've got a lot of call and put open interest, the most in aggregate of both across the entire chain. So if we take that out to the downside, volatility could get more intense. And on the other side of it, we take 4,400 out on a weekly closing basis. Bulls are definitely going to be in control. So I think we need to continue to watch. But my whole takeaway here is don't make a lot of OPEX week out of how this week um, trades. Look at how it closes on Friday and look at how we trade in the first couple of days of next week. I think that's going to be the most important part of this. So those would be the that would be sort of the, the overlay and the signs that I would be looking for. I hope that helps. Yeah, thank you. That was very helpful. Yes. You're very welcome. Did you have a, a follow-up as well? Yeah, so I just had a question about, um, it's just like a, a question about, like, what is, what do you predict the risk of a deflationary bust, considering, um, based on the Fed's current trajectory? Um, so, like, for example, like, some factors that I'm thinking about are, like, um, like, credit tightening, the banking turmoil, um, um, I guess, high higher interest rates for longer so people you know cash might be king um so i'm just like kind of wondering like what were the chances of a deflationary bust where like maybe the fed like over tightens um in the long term 
Yeah, I mean, I think, look, when, when we talk about the Fed, there's one thing that I like to say. They have a, two, a dual policy mandate that the public knows, which is, you know, maximum employment, stable prices, right? They also have their, their sort of less known mandate, which is to inflate and destroy bubbles. And they're certainly in the bubble-destroying component of their tightening cycle. That's what they want to do. That's what they hope to do. Powell was the first Fed chair, as I mentioned earlier, to ever mention a housing bubble. And so I think they're still intent on trying to do what they can, but we also see that they're a little more reserved in their follow-through. The statement was very hawkish. Powell's press conference was pretty bland. In terms of the potential for a deflationary bust, look, it's always going to be there. There's always going to be that potential. But my opinion at where we are right now is actually the risk is to the upside with inflation. That we've actually, we've actually created a situation where we have structurally embedded inflation, where it's become more secular in nature. And it's to some of the points I was speaking to earlier, but essentially a rising cost of capital, labor scarcity, resource scarcity. And then if we start to get into a point where demand comes back, that does bode very poorly for making progress on inflation over the longer term. Can the Fed subdue the uh, inflation rate in the short term? Sure. They certainly have on the headline level. Eventually, they probably will on core when the services industry goes into meaningful contraction. And as Aisha said, when we see employment go up, you know, assuming it goes up at 5% or higher. But on the other side of that, when we get into the next new credit cycle, it's very likely that inflation is going to come back earlier and from albeit higher prices. Because even if we have disinflation, that's just inflation running at a lower rate. That just means the cumulative impacts of price, right, uh, prices going up are just slowing down, but they're not providing relief. So I think it's, it's unlikely that we see a deflationary bust unless things go really off the rails in the banking system. But on the other side of it, I think inflation is becoming more structurally embedded, and that's actually the bigger concern. And the irony here, if you think about it, is no one would really think on the surface level that, that raising interest rates would create more potential for structural inflation. But the rising cost of capital has to be passed down the chain. And that means that businesses that are incurring higher costs, they have to have their consumers incur their costs or eat lower margins, which you're not likely to do. It certainly won't make their investors very happy. Okay, thank you. That makes sense. I appreciate that. And um, yeah, that's those are all, all my questions. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Great questions, Dr. Hughes. And um, Antonio, I see you've been out there waiting to ask a question. And everyone, we're going to wrap up after this question. We really appreciate everyone tuning in. This has been a lot of fun. We appreciate all your uh, your support and uh, just tuning in and asking great questions. And so Tonio has a question. Then there's a text question that someone also asked in a reply that we'll get to as well. So Tonio, what's going on, my friend? Glad to have you on Spaces here. What's on your mind? Hey, MM, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you just fine. Cool beans, brother. Glad you're uh, back on uh, Twitter Spaces. This the you're like the milk of magnesia to my uh, macro over here. But hey, listen, <laughs> listen uh, so for us semiconductor followers, traders, you know, you, we usually can watch certain indicators, uh, you know, uh, ISM new orders, South Korean exports and Taiwan exports. They're all on a downtrend. They've been on a downtrend for, I think, two or three months now. Um, but market doesn't seem to care. They're front running everything. What are you watching on the indicator side for semis, if you don't mind me asking? I mean, I think there's two letters that everyone that is playing those stocks has their mind. Oh, don't say eyes. it. Don't say it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I've been working with generative AI for like a year. I work for a Fortune 50, I think we are. 
so we got like early early on it and most of the stuff that we were using last year it got shelved because uh security concerns it wasn't working well so when people are like oh my gosh it's gonna change everything it's like it's literally just shelves sitting in the dust in our uh our department <laughs> well well hey, look i mean powell's speech was clearly written by fed gpt so they've got to be making some progress here somewhere right let's go <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you, but no, it, you're hearing like even hedge funds are collecting A100 chips to try to arb them out. And it's like, yeah, that works so well in, during the, the cycles, right? Right. And, and look, and I think you made a really good point. When we look at the hard data, it's not good, right? You look at Taiwan, you look at Korea, you look at the data from Samsung, you look at the uh, data from Foxconn, you look at Micron. I mean, all these guys are slowing down. Even NVIDIA, you know. If you take out their projections, you just look at their year over year, it's not terribly impressive either. AMD had a pretty bad quarter. They're now trading at a PE of, what, over 400 because of the compression of their bottom line? There's a lot of struggle in the sector. And last last quarter, not this quarter, but last quarter, AMD was actually marking up prices by keeping uh, supply artificially scarce. Right. So I'd say there's there's pain ahead for the sector. I don't think that it's priced rationally right now. I do think that the AI hype cycle, if you look at the Gartner hype cycle curve, we're kind of closing in on peak hype. You know, AI has a lot of potential. It is eventually going to go places. I just don't think it's right here right now. I think there's more work to do. And so I would say that, you know, in, in the short to intermediate run, this stuff can run higher and it presents some pretty attractive opportunities to raise cash and, and to potentially hedge. But I wouldn't want to be getting long a lot of this stuff here because I think it's priced in extreme premium. Yeah, that's uh, well said. Ed. You know, before I hop off, if you guys have a ta- uh, chance, go look at uh, MM's predictions for 2020. I think he put them out in November 2021. Yeah, freaking legend. Way to go, MM. Oh, you're talking about the 2022s? Yeah, I think you put out the tweet November 2021 for the yeah. 2022 prediction, heavy commodities. Yeah, that was legendary, brother. Thank good you job. so much. Really appreciate that. Really appreciate that. And it's good to know that you've been following on for a while, my journey there on Twitter. And uh, we've got one last question here. This is someone that asked it over text. So, Here's my question, Mayhem. Please comment on the Fed saying they won't finance U.S. fiscal debt. And they go on to say that's extremely important. And look, I I think it's something even going back to uh, post-Great Financial Crisis, even during the Great Financial Crisis, Bernanke was asked flat out at a congressional hearing, Are, is QE monetizing the debt? And he said no, with a straight face, which is a little misleading. And here's why. The way QE works is the Fed is buying U.S. Treasury debt at auctions and on the market, right? And when they're doing that, they're holding it on their balance sheet. They're collecting that interest. That interest is being used to fund the Fed's expenses. And then the balance after that, which is a lot, is given back to the Treasury. So it's almost like having a sort of like interest-free credit card where you get back the interest you paid at the end of the year. And so to say they're not financing the debt, it's, I mean, look at the mechanics of it. They clearly are financing the debt. And then the other side of it is when they cut rates, the interest burden of the government, particularly in the very short end of the yield curve, goes down. And the opposite of that is true when they hike rates, right? We can see the interest burden of the government all over the yield curve, but particularly the shorter end has gone up commensurate with those Fed hikes. And so the U.S. government is facing an interest burden of a trillion dollars or higher than that moving forward. And I would say that 
you know, the Fed has, if you look at everything that we've just discussed in terms of rates, in terms of QT versus QE and the impact, it's pretty obvious they've been monetizing the debt for well over a decade on and off. So I hope that's helpful to everyone out there. We really appreciate you all tuning in. Tonio, you've got your hand up there. Go right ahead. Just, just really quick, did you notice today uh, Powell said, quote, significantly reducing securities holdings? What is your take? So Powell, th their, their goal here really with QT is to run down the balance sheet as much as they possibly can to give them the ammunition to fight whatever is coming down the pipe later. And I think that they also have to do that to further tighten financial conditions commensurate with their goal. And we've kind of been on a vacation from tightening for quite a while. We've had countervailing flows in the People's Bank of China, Bank of Japan, the Treasury General account. Now we see the other side of that where Treasury issuance is going up uh, pretty significantly and Fed policy may start to have a tightening effect in the back half of this year. And I think what Powell's speaking to is that the Fed's balance sheet is still extraordinarily large. They have to try to run it down as much as they can. QE has been a, an incredible experiment. We've never seen anything like this in history. And we know from the, uh, the U.S. House of Lords study that they, they or I'm sorry, the U.K. House of Lords study said that, um, you know, that, that no central bank is fully normalized in a post-QE world, that their balance sheets have always remained elevated. So on that side of the ledger for treasuries, I'd say there's, there's probably still a lot of work to do for the Fed. Mortgages, if that's what you're asking about, but like agency-backed securities, um, that's a whole other can of worms. I think that eventually the Fed may actually have to start selling those. Um, the treasuries that are content to roll off, a lot of that stuff can just roll off just fine. But I, you know, I would defer to Aisha on this. I think she has more expertise about how the MBS work. But I would say that, yeah, at some point they may have to sell them because the, the duration on these is very long. It's very late at night for me <laughs> to answer that question <laughs> in in brief. Um, but yeah, no, suffice to say, I, I do think you're right. I think we're coming to a point where um, we're going, we're, we might see, and I think that's it, that was actually a good catch. I, I caught that as well, Tonya. Um, he did say significantly. So I, I think they will probably have to start selling agency MBSs soon. And perhaps this is the way that they're opening the door to that, right? Um, at the end of the day, now they're going to have to offset um, a lot of the liquidity that has been pumped into the system or has inadvertently come into the system uh, from various sources from the beginning of the year. So one of the side effects of this has obviously been, you know, the boom we're seeing or the rally we're seeing in the stock market. But obviously this doesn't help the Fed much, right, in tightening conditions. So I think they're going to have to do more uh, from that perspective. Now, it, it all seems really weird at this point in time because on the one hand they're pausing, but on the other hand they're thinking about ramping up QT. But think about it like this. Once they do finish tightening, once they do raise all the rates that they need to raise, um, they're not going to cut for a while. And then the only tool that they're actually going to have is QT. And they're hoping that the effect, the lag effect of QT is actually going to come into play sometime next year. So what we've been seeing now is, of course, a reduction in the, debt, of course, a reduction in the balance sheet, but it hasn't been 
as fast as we hoped. And that's fine because they've been raising rates at the same time. Because if they do both at a very, you know, high pace, they do it both in, it's going to break the system. And, you know, they might induce a recession, but that doesn't mean they want to break the economy, right? Um, As far as the Fed tightening has been concerned, I think they've done a pretty good job at holding everything together, keeping everything in balance. I know we saw a few blow-ups and a few big blow-ups, but they contained it very, very well. I mean, if you think about the GFC and think about now, totally different, right? Everything's still functioning. Things are still going pretty much okay. So I don't think they're going to ramp up QT just yet, but they might do it sometime next year once they finish tightening. Oh, sorry, raising rates. And one thing to add to that, too, that was really interesting, a New York Fed study also suggested that the Fed may actually continue doing QT as they get into their rate-cutting cycle, which yes. would be a very yes. interesting dynamic. Yes, correct. This is something that not just in New York Fed, but I think a lot of the banks are also saying this, a lot of the analysts are saying this, that it's quite likely that QT will continue even if the Fed is cutting rates, because they might have to cut rates just to bring, you know, cool down the economy on one side of things. But that that doesn't solve their problem of this massive, massive balance sheet that they have, right? And they have to run down this balance sheet. It's just massive. It's too, too big. And it served a purpose. It served It served its purpose during the pandemic. It held things up. It kept the economy going. It kept the U.S. out of trouble. It kept the world out of trouble, in fact. And now it's not needed anymore. You don't need a balance sheet that's like $8 trillion. So whatever the circumstances are, I think QT, so to speak, is going to continue at some level for a long time. And it's an interesting dichotomy because we have a government that has a lot of debt. We're in a, a pretty leveraged country with 350% debt to GDP. At some point, somewhere, somewhere down the line, the Fed has to U-turn pretty meaningfully. But the real question is when and how does structural inflation impact that decision? And you know what does this do to government spend and their capacity to really respond meaningfully into a recessionary environment? Will the fiscal impulse be as strong when so much of that spending has already happened ahead of the recession with the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act and some of these others. So everyone, we really want to thank you for tuning in. It's very late for Aisha. It's about 1.22 a.m., believe it or not. She's hung in there with us for that long. So I want to make sure that she can get some rest. But thank you so much for everyone tuning in. If you want to learn more about our work, check us out on Macrovisor at macrovisor.com. That's our website. You can also check out our podcast by going to Apple, Amazon, Google, or Spotify. Punch in Macrovisor. You'll find our podcast. You can uh, grab our episodes there. And you can listen to recording in the spaces or find it as a podcast. So we'll be putting that out there by the end of the week. So thanks again for everyone that tuned in. And if you wanted to check out Macrovisor's paid subscription, we actually have a 30% off sale for FedNest Day. That's what we call this going on until Tuesday of next week. So we will catch you all soon. Really appreciate the support, the great questions, the interaction, and we hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. 